It's August 26, 2006, and this is The Candid Frame. Well, welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. And I want to send a special welcome to all the new subscribers who have found this largely as a result of uh, the Photocast Network. And for those of you who don't know, the Candid Frame is now part of the Photocast Network, which is a collection of photo-related podcasts, basically a one-stop destination for anyone who's interested in photography and likes listening and, and watching content about photography via podcast. If you go to photocastnetwork.com, you'll find links to not only this show, but several other shows, including Tips from the Top Floor, Photo Walkthrough, Light Source, Two-Minute Photoshop Tricks, The Simple Photo Minute, The Radiant Vista, and martinbailey.com. If you've been listening to podcasts for a week or, or over a year, you know how difficult it can be to find, to find content, particularly quality content. And in respect to photography, what, uh, what's been done is that we've brought together really the best shows out there that exist on the topic of photography and um, basically created a sort of web ring uh, for podcasting in which you can check out one or all of these different shows. Um, I think you'll find that if you listen to a couple of episodes on each show that, like me, you'll become subscribers to each and every one of these shows. I'm sort of insatiable in terms of my desire to learn more and more about photography. And um, I think this is going to prove a great resource for for not only me, but for everyone else out there. So go to the Photocast Network and uh, check out a couple of episodes. And, and if you like what you hear or see, please subscribe to the shows. Now, uh, another thing that I've been doing is that I've been teaching photography online through a company called BetterPhoto.com, and starting in September, I have a couple of classes coming up in which I'm teaching uh, various aspects of portraiture. One is an available light portraiture class, and another one is uh, posing in portraiture. Um, You can find out more about these uh, classes and other classes offered by BetterPhoto by visiting their website at BetterPhoto.com. I'll have a link uh, to the site on the Candid Frame, uh, the Candid Frame uh, blog page. Now, one of the things I've been uh, working with, if you've been listening to the show from the very beginning, is is trying to achieve a, a certain level of quality in terms of the uh, sound, the sound quality, and uh, I think I've gotten closer to that, and I've had some help, uh, particularly from Chris Marquardt from Tips from the Top Floor as well as just been reading a lot of different material and trying out a a variety of different software. So hopefully with this episode, not only will the quality of the podcast improve, but more importantly, I'm hoping to make it much more consistent. Um, I'd appreciate any comments that you have in respect to that, but I'm thinking that uh, from now on, the the show is going to be a lot more uh, reliable in terms of sound quality. So uh, I appreciate your patience with that. Um, one of the uh, other things that I was going to do this episode was to talk about my experience at the Santa Fe 
photographic workshops starting with Jay Maisel, but I'm finding that most of my episodes run about 30 to 40 minutes on average, and I really, really didn't want to take a whole bunch of time talking about my own personal experience and, uh, and cutting into the time uh, that I dedicate to the interviews, or I didn't want to make the interviews uh, or the podcasts themselves too long. So if there really is an interest in, in my experience, uh, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com. And if there is enough interest, I'll probably record uh, a special episode of The Candid Frame, uh, a 10-minute episode or so, in which I discuss my experience uh, taking the workshop and some things that I think are important to consider if you're um, thinking about taking a photographic workshop, if not just at Santa Fe at any at any workshop. So send me an email, and uh, once I get a sense of how many people out there actually want to hear about it, uh, I'll then decide whether or not to include uh, a special episode on that. And before we get on to our interview, I just want to send out a special congratulations to Marco Torres. He and his wife uh, Karen have recently uh, introduced a new child in the world, Rio Santos Torres. And uh, Marco was uh, a key figure in helping me start the podcast. He introduced me to uh, the benefits of GarageBand and kind of helped me navigate the early stages of the show, as well as conducted an interview for me uh, early on with Howard Bingham. So uh, thank you again, Marco, and congratulations. Now, in today's episode, I'm going to be introducing you to Harry Gamboa. And Harry is, he's, a, he's, he's so many things. He's a photographer, he's a filmmaker, he's a playwright, he writes fiction, he's a performance artist. And since 1972, he's really been uh, really very, very proactive in terms of not only photography, but in, in, in terms of his um, political activism and his use of his art in order to express his own unique take on being Chicano and growing up in East Los Angeles and just navigating the, the territory of, of uh, social and, and political issues uh, from both a personal uh, perspective and also from a perspective of, of, uh, of a large community in Los Angeles that oftentimes isn't documented uh, uh, very extensively in terms of not only photography, but also um, just in general, in terms of the general media. But I think that you'll find that his his work is is amazing in two respects. One, because of the content. It's something that we don't typically see. But also, it, in, in respect to his photography, it really shows that photography can be more than just documenting an event. It can be more than just taking a pretty picture. He really uses photography to express his own personal experience and his own take on living, uh, living life in this country and living life in Los Angeles and being a Chicano male. And uh, I think it really kind of challenges us to really think about what we can and want to do with our photography. So take a listen and enjoy our interview with Harry Gamboa. Um, let's start off with your first experience with photography. I know you do a lot of different things in terms of your playwriting and, and your writing and your photography and your work with video, but, um, was your first experience with photography, um, 
something that happened growing up in East LA or did it happen once you got uh, went into school? Well, um, you know, uh, I kind of grew up with my mother being sort of a shutterbug with one of these old uh, Browning stomatics, always uh, shooting pictures, documenting everything. And uh, my father was uh, the opposite. Um, whatever photograph he ever took, I had a great picture of his thumb or his nose because uh, he never could point in the right direction. And um, uh, my aunt was married to a man who was um, in into getting all the neighborhood and uh, they'd make these uh, incredible um, uh, film noir action movies uh, using eight millimeter film. And then everyone would gather together and uh, watch these films and get drunk. And so when I was growing up, uh, that's kind of was sort of like the premise of uh, what uh, people did in order to entertain themselves and to document their lives. And um, growing up in East LA at the time that I did, I, um, I became aware of the fact that uh, my environment was uh, somewhat unique in, um, in, its, in its role of Los Angeles and that it was a very separate entity in the city. It, it operated uh, and functioned almost like a separate country within a city, uh, which is East Los Angeles. Um, whatever was taking place in greater Los Angeles rarely ever affected East Los Angeles and things that were most important in East Los Angeles were not even uh, known about in any way, way shape, or form uh, in the greater part of the, the, the population out here. Um, uh, growing up at the time that I did, because uh, I'm about to be 54 years old, um, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, um, I actually, my formative years were prior to the Civil Rights Movement. And I was able to see some examples of blatant racism, violence, police violence, and actually gang violence. Uh, uh, I think the kind of um, images that one would see in a war environment, um, where by the age of five I had witnessed uh, uh, just great uh, examples of brutality. Uh, and by the time I was um, uh, late teenager, I had kind of not only had witnessed but had experienced uh, various levels of brutality in the school, on the streets, um, and it kind of all culminated um, uh, in um, August 29th, 1970, uh, an event called the Chicano Moratorium. Um, and this was when there was a very um, great uh, demonstration against the war in Vietnam in East Los Angeles. It was basically one of the largest peaceful demonstrations on the West Coast, uh, but then it ended uh, with an attack by uh, both the LAPD and the LA County Sheriff's Department uh, in which uh, families were attacked uh, with uh, tear gas and uh, batons and bullets. Um, and um, what I was really struck by was not only the things that I had personally witnessed, but within the following days, the kind of material that was presented in the newspapers, on television, and the images that I had um, seen through my own eyes, but that had been captured in uh, photographic images, uh, were then utilized to tell basically a lie, uh, to tell the kind of story that uh, really transformed my community into uh, what would be known as basically an enemy community uh, in this country, the Chicano community. Uh, this was sort of the, the, frame, the framing of what these images were. And I suddenly realized at that point that um, 
quite a number of things that I'd seen growing up throughout my life had kind of slipped past, uh, and I had no proof whatsoever of what it was that I had witnessed. Um, I could tell about it, but couldn't provide any visual uh, images. And um, what I found out was that uh, the technique uh, of, of, of having pictures to prove your point uh, in this society became very important to me. Um, and actually, a, a few months later in January, I was in a group of people, uh, and uh, this was documented also. Uh, it was like, I believe it was January 31st, um, 1971, um, where uh, basically a troop of um, LA County sheriffs um, lined up at a street with approximately 40, 50 police officers carrying shotguns, and they basically opened fire, free fire into a group, um, and people all around me were fall falling, um, and uh, in the end, uh, actually, a, a friend of mine appeared on the front page of the LA Times carrying a, a person that had been shot to death, uh, and he was fired from his job for uh, you know appearing on the cover, being mm -hmm. in an event, and it just occurred to me that um, if I was going to tell any stories, that the visual element would have to be integrated into this, and um, and I think I was still kind of thinking about how I could go about it. Uh, the, the idea of going into photography hadn't really gelled yet, and um, one day I was um, just thumbing through some magazines, and I saw an ad. And it was basically a group of geese that had been walking down the street and looking at a sign in Hebrew. And um, something about that image really struck me because um, even though I had never really seen a group of geese um, reading a sign, it just seemed to reflect on the kinds of images, uh, incongruous moments that I had witnessed my whole life. And I kind of thought to myself, I, well, I've seen things like this. Uh, and I... Um, I found myself, uh, I tore the page out of the newspaper and I bought that camera, which was like a Minolta 101, mm -hmm. uh, early 35 millimeter um, camera. And um, I went out and uh, I was supposed to be going to school at the time and I think I took a student loan uh, and um, purchased uh, several hundred rolls of film, uh, um, ectochrome film, I believe it was, and. Uh, shot uh, all these rolls of film and um, by the last roll of film uh, I f felt pretty comfortable because uh, some of these images, uh, I think one of my images actually was uh, given some award in the LA Times and little by little um, uh, some of the images that, uh, that I had uh, photographed started to appear in different kinds of publications or people were referring to them and this was also coincided, uh, this was about the early 70s uh, when I had uh, um, co-founded an art group called OSCO, which is nausea in Spanish. Um, and with a group of people that I was working with in that group, <clears throat> these artists, uh, we would photograph ourselves uh, doing different things, uh, creating different events. Um, and uh, uh, because I didn't have any formal training, and, um, and this goes all the way back to prior to kindergarten, no actual formal training of any kind, um, I had um, kind of come with this concept that uh, photography was two different things to me. And one was uh, uh, to document the actual events, and then the other one was to create events. 
And I kind of had that kind of notion that, you know, one is performative and one is uh, what's real. And, um, and as life went on and on, um, uh, I guess uh, my performative events um, started looking more real. And as I w became more aware of my environment, what was real seemed more performed. And then it suddenly, they both kind of spilled over. And so quite often when I've um, taken photographs of something that I've just stumbled across, people wonder how I was able to set it up uh, and vice versa. There's sometimes I've, uh, for instance, there was a piece that I put together uh, called um, Decoy Gang War Victim uh, way back in the 70s. Um, and what it was was it was a person laying in the middle of the street and I laid out a bunch of road flares and um, I had gone around to the various local TV uh, stations, uh, and these were when they were independent stations, yeah. Channel 11 and 13 and, and 5, and uh, boy, I'm not sure which one else, maybe 9, um, and had gone to the different news directors, and this was when they used to flash on the screen still image slides, uh, like Saturday Night Live does, uh, to tell the news, and I had explained to them that I had taken the photograph of the last gang member that's ever been, uh, that it would ever be, be killed. Uh, and this is the last guy, you know, and uh, and so they basically on the news that week announced it as being the, the last gang member to be killed mm -hmm. in East Los Angeles. And um, a few years back, um, they put out a show called uh, Global Conceptualism, and they put that particular image as being on the timeline of the 20th century uh, conceptual works, uh, uh, markers of um, being able to um, insert uh, into mass media sort of a fraudulent activity, but something that would sort of basically fall under the way other pieces of the news are created also. Mm. And, um, and so uh, photography has always been uh, something that's been very important in my work, uh, but for most of the time that I've done photography, I'd have to say that there's been very little that's ever been printed whatsoever. There's been almost no actual object of uh, uh, photographs. Um, you know, I've had several um, art exhibitions uh, over the years, uh, but uh, maybe whatever it is, it's hung on the wall, uh, you know, and I'm sure it's, uh, they wouldn't amount more to 150 prints uh, in black and white that have ever been printed, yeah. uh, even though I've probably shot a million photographs in black and white. What, one of the series that I was real curious to hear about was one that you've been doing since uh, 91 which is the Chicano Mail Unbound mm -hmm. and uh, they're very striking portraits one because your, your choice to photograph them is is done at night uh, rather than than daylight and so in the series is full body shots usually shot at that sort of an upward angle yeah. and uh, tell me about the how this this series started and what was the the idea behind it well again um Sort of my in initial focus with this was uh, uh, in 1991, I had um, uh, gone through a whole phase where I was doing a lot of public speaking, uh, going to a lot of different universities across the country, uh, meeting a lot of uh, people that uh, were working either on their PhDs or writing books. Uh, and I was kind of introduced to academia, sort of at uh, these people that were, um, you know, at the forefront of their fields. and. Um, the, the one thing that uh, coincided with them being at the forefront of their fields was that they also were very comfortable in terms of their position in life, and that is, you know, tenure track, uh, you know, pretty good income, nice homes, uh, and I think that tended to 
to kind of um, give them the impression that progress is being made, that things are really turning around, uh, things are looking good uh, for people. Um, however, I kind of would go back from whatever communities I was visiting to where I was at, which was in East LA at the time, and um, things had seemed to be progressively worse uh, in terms of um, the kinds of uh, activities that were taking place on the street, uh, more violence, uh, uh, racial profiling, uh, and so I uh, had gone to one uh, particular event where uh, everyone was basically toasting themselves as, uh, you know, le reaching a new level of um, social uh, status. And um, when I left, I went off to my uh, car, which was a very uh, tiny little thing that was about to break down, uh, but the radio worked barely. And, um, and I kind of, as the engine started, the radio had been left on and it said something like, uh, you know, be on the lookout, uh, he's a Chicano male, um, he's dangerous, uh, whatever, and then uh, switch to commercial. And then I kept thinking, I go, well, um, you know, that's the kind of things I've heard all along, uh, but are they looking for me or my uncles, my dad, my son, my brothers, uh, friends, people that I respect, uh, people that I've known all. It's this whole uh, generic kind of identity uh, of when you search uh, for people. And uh, uh, one of the things I'd been thinking about at that point too was the way Chicanos had been uh, presented photographically in newspapers and in magazines at up until that time, which was um, uh, they would either be viewed as in groups, uh, either as members of uh, undocumented workers or in gangs, or if they were presented up close in a close-up, they were always in a downward cast kind of eye motion because they were the criminal that was caught. Um, and so I kept thinking, uh, if this is the impression people have of who Chicanos are, uh, it's, um, it might not be too difficult to stumble across me in a dark alley and think I'm the guy they're searching for. And so I decided that I would uh, just make a list of people that I knew that were friends that I knew personally, kind of in concentric circles of, uh, of uh, proximity to me as family and friends and acquaintances and colleagues and people that I've just known on the streets that have always been cool. Uh, and I just kind of drew up a list of people and I, I uh, went out and found all these guys and um, uh, took photographs of them. Uh, and the idea was to photograph them using available light in an exterior urban setting. Uh, I would have them wear something dark, a uh, little bit of black on them, um, and I would just have them simply look into the camera. And using a 24 millimeter uh, wide angle lens um, and uh, positioning the camera uh, midway at the length of their body, uh, it would give you the impression that I'm shooting a full length image, but at the same time, as they're looking at the lens, it's they're looking directly, but they're at the same time they're looking kind of downcast at you. Mm -hmm. um, which, when exhibited, um, these works have been exhibited at times, and I line up these individuals uh, in a row. Many times, these men don't know each other. The connection is me. I might know mm -hmm. them through family, but many of these people didn't know my you know relatives and this and that, and so. Um, uh, one time, uh, I think I must have exhibited about uh, 15 of them at the Phoenix Museum of Art, um, and people ran up to me and wanted to know what gang this was. <laughs> and, um, and then I asked them, you know, uh, well, um, you know, uh, 
and then people would come up to me, well, why are they so angry? Why are they so threatening? And uh, what really what they weren't used to is to having um, Chicano men just looking at you um, head on, uh, an assertive point of view, not an angry point of view, just looking in your eyes. Uh, and they weren't familiar with that situation. And what they really weren't familiar with was when they would read the names of these individuals, uh, because of the kinds of people that I know, many of them had their PhDs. Some of them were scientists, uh, lawyers, artists, uh, writers, uh, students. Uh, you know, people would run up to me and say, well, where's a gardener? Where's the, you know, whatever. And I, I actually don't know gardeners, and I don't really know personally gang members. And so, um, uh, and, and uh, maybe by the time I get to the end of my list, maybe I'll add a few if I bump into a few. Uh, but um, uh, as I've, um, as, as the project has progressed, and there's been um, two years that I haven't photographed since 91, and actually this is one of the years I won't be photographing the men. Uh, but I'm kind of drawing up the list for next year. Um, uh, uh, every year I put together, um, it could be as little as three or four, and I think the most I ever shot in one year was close to 40. Wow. And, um, and I have some of the men uh, exhibited on my website, but not all of the men. And, uh, and some of these works have been shown, like at the Smithsonian, and some have been shown on various different types of TV shows. Uh, but uh, very few of them have ever been printed also. There's another series that you've done uh, that I particularly liked, was, which was based on the photonovelas. Oh, okay. And uh, I remember growing up in L.A. and walking to downtown and, and seeing them. And, you know, and, and I think it's, from my experience in Los Angeles, they were as much of a part of L.A. as any other photographic image uh, uh, was. I want you to explain to, to listeners who may not be familiar with photo, what photonovelas are and what you were doing with your, with your series um, using that motif. Well, uh, photonovelas are basically um, a, sort of like a photographic comic book style. Of, um, uh, but at the same time, they kind of have a tone of a soap opera. Uh, and Spanish language soap operas have sort of an, emo an emotional intensity that's cranked up like 10,000%. Uh, and um, I wanted to create a, uh, a, uh, a series of photonovelas that kind of, you would locate the performers almost at this elevated emotional state, but they were also at an, emotion, at a, at an elevated state of consciousness, at an elevated state of political awareness, uh, and also, uh, uh, generating their own personal philosophies that in some way or another don't really fit into contemporary society, uh, which would uh, contribute to their problems. And um, so quite often uh, uh, my uh, photonovelas relate to uh, momentary angst that's complicated uh, by a whole variety of issues. Um, and so this is kind of where the play with the text that's involved in the, the little balloons that appear. Uh, but the images uh, would kind of, kind of, would kind of drag you through um, um, uh, sort of a, an event that they would be going through. And um, so I have some of those on my website also. I think uh, the thing you've been doing recently with the PDFs is very interesting. Uh, here's a format that's primarily used for business. Yeah. You know, and here you are using 
your images and text in order to make uh, a piece of art. And I know there are some people that, are, that have been playing with that, but um, what gave you the idea of using the PDFs as, as a means of being able to use photographs as, as a, a form of art and communication? Well, um, way back in the early or mid-70s, I was part of what was known as the male art movement, that's M-A-I-L. And um, it was kind of an international movement where people would send things to uh, each other. Um, and I would oftentimes send some of my photographs to people I didn't know in different countries, uh, in different locations, and uh, people that were um, uh, famous and uh, notorious and uh, uh, people that just seemed to be at the top of a masthead somewhere. And uh, this has actually contributed to many of my works being um, reproduced. Uh, for instance, uh, send something uh, out to, um, you know, uh, Europe or Mexico, and the uh, next thing you know, uh, with whatever I had attached to it, uh, people um, had responded to. And um, I guess maybe at the beginning of the mid-'90s, um, I became familiar with, like, email, and I started sending things out. Uh, wasn't too happy with um, my approach uh, uh, in the sense that I would do a lot of text work, but because people were still kind of new to it, I'd do these things that I'd send out to uh, 3,000 people, except um, 500 of them would think that I'm personally writing to them specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had to kind of rethink about how I would approach things. And then I started um, uh, thinking how to possibly use some of the metaphors and some of the concepts of photonovela, and at the same time, book, the idea of a book, and at the same time of uh, flyers and email, and it seemed to all kind of meld into that format of PDF, of, um, of being able to create a uh, booklet that you can either print or not print, or one that you can attach and send out to as many people on your list, uh, or one that you could put on your hard drive and open it up whenever you want and view it, or you can, might even view it for projection. and. Um, I found that uh, I could create a, uh, a basically a complete book like this. Uh, um, I think you were present in one of these things, and I think it took approximately five minutes to do the actual imagery. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe the, the writing and the laying out and uh, creating it might take another day uh, of doing that. And then to send out to maybe 5,000 people would take just a matter of a few minutes. Uh, so. Um, so for something that would take uh, maybe a 24-hour period uh, where you start with a group of people standing on a street corner and it ending up in a book uh, that's free for the, view for the viewer and actually on some level free for the uh, creator, uh, I found that to have that kind of control of, um, of production, post-production and distribution, uh, uh, as a way to basically just another uh, layer of communication. Uh, and, and because of the format, uh, it becomes easily accessible. Uh, the PDF format is so universal and um, easily accessible yeah. that uh, uh, many, many of the different people that are on my email list are in different countries, and uh, it's no problem for them to open it up. When I had a chance to see your work, it was interesting to see you do your stills, and then you did the video as well. and. Uh, when you were doing the video, you were just asking them, uh, uh, each person, uh, a question, and they gave you their response rather spontaneously. 
Um, tell me about when you began to incorporate video in, into your work and how this sort of style of, of basically improvisation um, found its way into, into your work. Well, um, maybe in the mid-70s I was introduced to a handful of um, independent filmmakers, um, people that were about 10 years older than me, uh, who were really intent on becoming well-known documentarians and uh, feature-length filmmakers. Um, they had all gone either to UCLA or USC. Uh, my background wasn't as such, and um, back then it was sort of an exclusive club of who had access to the um, uh, the the real the real rewinders and the the cameras, um, and so to get your hand on actual production required a lot of money or connections or being in school, of which I I had none, and I always thought that uh, the idea of being able to produce something uh, would be of a um, benefit for me and for others. Uh, and then when it came down to the fact that anyone can have a personal uh, video camcorder, uh, I um, started doing videos uh, maybe about the mid-80s uh, for public access. Um, got a lot of my work out into the world, um, again, sort of following the same format where I was able to reach a million, literally a million people at one point uh, after spending $50. And... Um, uh, little by little I started doing different types of work that related to video and then when it shifted into uh, digital video uh, and which um, uh, and I've only recently uh, figured out how to do DVDs but prior to that um, it seems so uh, complicated to do a DVD uh, to do a digital video and then transfer it to VHS that doesn't make sense and then but what really appealed to me was the QuickTime format uh, in which I can create something, have it compressed, uh, put it up on a website, uh, or send it out as an email. And, uh, uh, and I've been doing that for, I guess, since the mid-90s, or I'm sorry, since the about, maybe about seven years ago, I started doing that work um, where um, uh, the video became sort of an element also which you would, I would send out to people. And, um, and only recently am I starting to put together and integrating again in the PDF format uh, audio and video so that you'll receive a multimedia package that when you view it on uh, your computer uh, you will get this uh, multimedia event and then you could also just print out the printed elements yeah. also. I think it's interesting about your career that that your your interest in photography was really s spurred by sort of non-visual representation of you, of your life, of your community, and that now you're using a technology that allows you to share your own perspective of, of being a Chicano, of being an artist, of being a, an activist, not only to people within your own city, but from all over the world. What, what's, what's been interesting about the response you've gotten from people who not only live outside of Los Angeles, but live outside of the country? Oh, I am. Um I think some of the responses has been that, um, uh, well, I, I guess it's always been the response to many of the things that I do is that it makes it seem like so much more is going on. And uh, really what I do is I just live my life like any other person, except I kind of pay attention to some of the events that are going on around me, document it, share it, 
and I guess because some of the people that are in academia have paid attention to it, uh, they might write a chapter about some, some little minute minor event as being sort of socially relevant. Uh, but um, I just, uh, I guess I have a need to share moments, uh, moments that seem to connect with me with others and hopefully there's some connection with some other people. And so uh, what's happened is of course in, uh, in some places like Finland, uh, people, um, there was a person, a filmmaker by the name of Il Pajola who made a film based on something that I wrote. Uh, and uh, Paris, there have been people that have shown some of my work. Uh, in fact, some of the videos were actually um, featured at the Pompidou recently that, uh, that I'd done. Uh, and so sometimes they find their ways into uh, these institutional or television elements, because uh, one of the pieces wound up on uh, Nordic TV or whatever, um, but usually has al actually has no impact on my life, exactly because uh, I will then hear from them that this is what happened. Mm. I will not be there uh, when it's happening. Uh, in fact, um, uh, in fact, I heard of a friend of mine who nearly got beat up in a Berlin um, uh, nightclub uh, based on something that was said in a video. Uh, because they thought he did it, and so he redirected them to go look for me in East L.A. <laughs> so uh, I haven't bumped into uh, too many of, uh, of these Berliners there, but um, uh, I, uh, I, I just find that uh, the, the, the possibilities of uh, having a laptop and some small devices uh, which is really what, uh, you know, uh, you're able to have sort of a, a mini studio wherever you go if you're just aware of the different programs and capabilities. Um, you know, you can make something, uh, something out of nothing, which mm -hmm. is, I guess, the role of the artist. When you were coming up, you know, uh, you were involved in the East LA blowouts and, and about the, the inequality that was happening in terms of, of education, and that sort of was part and parcel of the whole Chicano movement. Um, and now you're a teacher, you're an educator, and you teach at, at the college level. How do you see the, the students today in terms of their awareness of, of imagery? Um, because back, you know, back in your day, um, the photographic image was not representative of, of your experience at all. Yeah. Uh, today, kids are bombarded with imagery all the time, some yeah. of which is representative, some of which is not. But how conscious do you see that the today's generation of students in terms of images, particularly that, that reflect their own, their own experience or their lack of? Well, I, I think one of the things about my period of time growing up was there was sort of a focus on intellectualism. There was a focus, uh, sort of a kind of, uh, even though it was far off in the distance, there was this new wave of music that was coming in, which is now known as classic rock. Uh, there was sort of the beat poets that had preceded uh, sort of my generation. Um, there were other kinds of movements, uh, literary movements. And at this point in time, I think what many of the younger people are affected by is sort of a push towards anti-intellectualism. Um, and at the same time, completely bombarded by media, uh, but not media in the kind that you create, media in the kind that you receive. And um, you find that uh, uh, um, uh, there's a term, I think, that's been developed. It's called a continuous partial attention, in which uh, people have three or four devices at the same time. 
have 20 people on hold, text message everywhere, uh, and you're looking at different objects, and in the, in the process, um, there's really not enough time to read a novel, and there's really not enough um, uh, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of an impetus to go and watch an old classic black and white film, um, and the whole notion of story and uh, content uh, might just get in the way. Um, and what happens is a lot of the younger people are very much affected by this. Uh, and, um, and the majority of the imagery that they receive is really propaganda to either, either uh, purchase a product or to participate in a war. And um, so my role as an instructor is to try to take them outside of that um, state of mind and if they could just for a moment take a look and see what's happening to them, they might find it in their best interest um, to take control of that rate of flow of information that's coming at them and to sift out what might be harmful and what might preclude their, uh, them from being well-educated people. Well, one of the things I'd like to do to, to, end the, to end the interview is to ask each photographer um, to recommend another photographer whose work they either admire or think that people should consider. And uh, who would that be for you and why? Well, um, there was one photographer, um, and I believe he's the only person that ever, uh, I guess, affected my point of view on work. Um, unfortunately, he's passed away. His name was Maury Kamhai. Um, and um, he uh, looked at my work once, and um, he also introduced me uh, to coffee with a little bit of vanilla in it. Uh, this was a <laughs> while back. Uh, and um, he, uh, he uh, suggested that I take a step back, take a look, and possibly um, do it with black and white. Um, and, uh, and actually, it changed my life, uh, his approach to just, uh, I was a little too close. Uh, I guess I also had been a very, the TV generation uh, with my forehead stuck to the TV screen. Uh, and I and sort of he was an a bit older than me and he kind of told me when I was a bit younger take a look back look what look at the bigger picture and then you can kind of see what you're looking at and I guess he was uh, well known for um, for photographing uh, prisoners in Los Angeles I'm sorry in California state prisons and also uh, the Sephardic Jews of Greece uh, and unfortunately passed away about five or six years ago mm, well it sounds interesting yeah. Uh, well, thanks, Harry. I appreciate uh, you finally being able to get together. Yeah, thanks so much, Barbara. Well, thank you for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments about this or any other episode, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or leave a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Don't forget, check out the Photocast Network at photocastnetwork.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X. Perella, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.